Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Man, I feel like I want to run into a battle after watching that little video right there. You know what I mean? Memorize a Braveheart speech or something and give it. I would take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 this past week, me and my family spent a little time down in Palm Coast with my side of the family, uh, vacationing with my parents and my brothers and their families. Uh, I came back a couple days to work in the office, so I was on the road a little bit. And uh, between here and there, um, there is a place that's uh, kind of irresistible, you know, to stop at for a snack. It may be the largest gas station in the history of gas stations. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Cracker Barrel, Walmart, Racetrack had a baby and named it Bucky, right? <laughs> the, uh, it, I, it's, a, it's a fascinating place, right? It, I, I'm not sure if there's another place where you can get gas, brisket, beef jerky, a 79-cent Big Gulp, some patio furniture, and a smoker all under one roof. Like, that's not a joke. Um, but I did stop in at Bucky's uh, once or twice, three, maybe four times uh, throughout those couple of days. I was back and forth. Uh, but I discovered something when I dropped in that made me even more of a fan because I didn't realize this. I discovered this this past week that they have a fountain drink uh, for one of my favorite drinks. It's uh, called Ar- Arnold Palmer, right? Some of you may know that, that type of drink. It uh, usually just comes in a can. Uh, combines Arnold Palmer, that combines. Uh, sweet tea and lemonade. We grew up calling it Tennessee tea because my uh, grandma and grandpa lived in East Tennessee. Uh, my grandma always made sweet tea and just dumped in a bunch of lemonade in it. So we, we loved that. I mean, that's my go-to drink at Chick-fil-A. Anybody with me? Maybe a couple people. Uh, that's now my go-to fountain drink at Bucky's, right? And some of you are looking at me, why do we need to know that this morning? Why, why is that significant information for me to hear from you uh, this morning on a Sunday morning? Well, we're in a series uh, on Sundays called, uh, called The Seven, all right, in the book of Revelation. We're studying seven letters from Jesus that are addressed to seven real churches that existed in the first century. And Jesus looks into these churches. Uh, he evaluates these churches. His evaluation, by the, uh, by the way, is the only evaluation that matters. And then shares what he sees. He shares his evaluation with these churches through these letters that are all recorded in the first three chapters of Revelation. Week one, we visited with the church in Ephesus, and Jesus pointed out that they had a loveless faith. because we could call them the loveless church. Uh, then we moved down the road to, to Smyrna, the church in the city of Smyrna, who had a gritty, strong faith. They were a faithful church. And this morning we visit the third church along this trade route uh, that was addressed in uh, this, these first three chapters of Revelation and get their own letter from Jesus in a city called Pergamum. All right? It's the church in a city called Pergamum who we'll see this morning had a compromising faith. We could call them the compromising church. Why? Because they had kind of an Arnold Palmer kind of faith. Now what do I mean by that? They were involved in what theologians call syncretism. It's the blending of beliefs. It's as if they kind of went to the spiritual soda machine or fountain drink machine and filled up with some Jesus and some gospel truths that they believe. These are Christians. These are genuine Christians. They believe that the Bible was true. But along the way, what they began to do is also fill their cup up with the teachings and views and practices of the godless, Christless pagan culture around them. Kind of melding it all together, thinking it's okay, and Jesus is coming along calling them out. He says, you have a compromising faith. And let me tell you, all of these letters are letters for the church in every age. But I'm telling you, this letter letter right here has a word for us this morning. 
See, because syncretism, the blending together of beliefs in the church, uh, Christians dabbling in and practicing sins in their life, like they belong to the world, or churches adjusting their position on things or starting to tolerate sin simply because it's become normalized in the culture is not just a historic problem in the church. It's a right now problem. And this passage is a passage that reminds us in a world where the cultural sands of a relativistic culture are constantly shifty. They're ever shifting. Are they not? I mean, they're, they're very shifty. All right? This culture can't seem to make up its mind about what it believes about anything. I mean, it feels like the, the moral trends in our culture ebb and flow, you know, as, as much as the fashion trends within a local high school, right? And that changes a lot. Right, month. What's in this month is out the next month, right? You know, give it a little time; it'll come back in style, right? Hence the bell-bottom jeans in my fifteen-year-old daughter's closet right now. <laughs> hence, oh, hence the Billy Ray Cyrus mullet on the head of my seven-year-old son right now, which I think is awesome. But just like fashion trends, how they come and go. Uh, cultural trends, in a similar way, moral trends—they come and they go, they ebb and they flow. They're ever-shifting. They're ever-changing. What is the constant? Uh, Generation in and generation out, God's Word. God's Word does not change. God's Word is timeless. It stays the same because God stays the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the job of the bride of Christ in every generation, in every age, is to hold fast to it. To vocalize it. To demonstrate it with our life. To defend His truth. To boldly proclaim the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Always in love, but always without compromise. Even when the culture looks at us and thinks we're crazy for it. And the church at Pergamon will need to, they'll need to be reminded of this. And hey, we can't be reminded of this too much either. So stand with your Bibles open as I begin to read. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. That's probably where you want to sit up and take some notes. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray this morning that you would have your way among us. That is our prayer, that we would live solely for your glory and your glory alone, that we would be faithful to the end, and we know that your word is here to help us do that. We know the flower fades, the grass withers. Your word remains the same from everlasting to everlasting. So, Father, I pray that this little letter to this little church that existed in the first century that encouraged them to hold fast to truth would encourage us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to divide this text up into three parts this morning. So we're going to see Jesus doing three things as he's addressing this church in Pergamum. And he begins in a similar way that he does in other letters. He begins with encouragement. 
So first we see this. We see first Christ celebrating his church's faithfulness in difficult, tough places. All right, we see Christ celebrating faithfulness in tough circumstances. All right, so now once again we see this, and I love this, that Christ is, he begins these letters not with a how-to, not with a manual as to how, for example, you're going to navigate persecution. He begins with something that we need first, and that is a vision of him. He begins not with a how-to, but with a who. All right, what he's doing in each of these churches is he's picking out specific parts of the revelation, the vision that was laid out in the first chapter of who he is. He's picking out specific revelation for each of these churches that that specific church will need in order to obey the contents of the letter that's delivered to them. And to the church in Pergamum, he introduces himself in this way, as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now, it's pretty easy because this comes up in multiple places in Scripture to understand what he's talking about there. The sword is referring to the word of truth. So what is Jesus doing here? He's presenting himself with authority right? The, as the one who is the source of truth, the one who speaks nothing but the truth, the one who holds ultimate authority in the universe. That's here what the sword symbolizes, which is a really important picture that this particular church is going to need to keep in their hearts. And you say, well, why? It's because they are under the thumb of a very authoritative, very intimidating, very powerful government who's continuously flexing on them, who's using their own sword to charge them around and to try to, at times, even kill them for their faith, the Roman sword. And so this church needs this big, powerful, authoritative vision of Jesus Christ. In other other words, they need to know in their minds and in their hearts, hey, Rome may wield a powerful sword on this earth, but make no mistake, Jesus wields a more powerful sword than the heavens. And they are under his authority. They're going to need that vision of Christ fresh in their hearts as they move forward because life living out their faith in that city has been difficult it's not going to get any easier and i love how jesus stops and recognizes that the care that he shows right here the shepherd that he is how in such a caring way look at verse 13 he says hey i know where you dwell i see you i'm aware nothing has escaped my eyes I see where you are. He says, I see where you, where, you're where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, or faith in me is how that could be understood. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He's saying, I see y'all. I see you. I see that you're trying to live out your faith in really difficult circumstances. I see y'all are living in the place that, that Satan, where Satan is on his throne, a place where Satan dwells. And what does he mean by that? I think generally what, what he's doing here is he's recognizing that this is a city where sin has run rampant, where wickedness is around every corner, and he's, he's recognizing that that's because Satan's there and he's relentlessly working against the cause of Christ. Time out. Before we move forward, I don't want you to escape those, that word, those two words, I know. Those are powerful words to hear from your king this morning. Some of you walked in here dealing with some difficult circumstances. You say, I feel, I mean, I feel, I feel forgotten. Jesus would say, I know how you feel. You, man, I feel like things are difficult right now in my life. Jesus would say, I know how you feel. I put on flesh, I know how you feel. He knows. Powerful words to hold on to this morning that your king, your good shepherd, who is our almighty king, he is our almighty Lord, but he's also a friend to sinners like us who sits with us knee to knee and eye to eye and says, I know. Now, what does he say specifically that he knows about this church? 
He says he knows that they're in difficult circumstances. He knows that they live in a city where it's difficult for them to live out their faith. Now, let's look at a few things about this city, Pergamum, all right? You can look at the picture on the screen. Or you can actually go to Pergamum today. Uh, then was in a region called Asia Minor, ruled by the Roman government. Today it's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was, you can even see from the ruins, the way that it's positioned on top of this hill. In those days, it was an impressive city to behold. It, it looked powerful, and it was powerful. All right? it's, it was the capital of the province of Asia. It, it held the second most uh, impressive and the largest uh, library in the world at that time, over 250,000 books that were all handwritten in their library there. It was second only to a huge library that was in Alexandria, Egypt at that time. So it was a very intellectual city. It was a very spiritual city. You had dozens and dozens of these beautiful temples and altars dedicated to the worship of pagan gods all over the place, uh, many of whom, by the way, were worshipped through sexual practices. But at the top of the pagan god chart in Pergamum, was none other than the emperor of Rome himself. This was a city that was known to be a center of, of, of emperor worship. All right? They were actually the first city to build a temper, temple in honor of a living emperor. In fact, that picture right there, I picked that specifically because that's what that, that's what that temple was right there. Those, those are ruins of the first temple that was built to a living uh, Caesar in order for them to go and to worship him as Lord. So this is a powerful, idol-worshipping, sexually immoral, pagan, Caesar-worshipping city. And what Jesus is pointing out is this is a city where Satan is the one behind the, the scenes pulling the strings. And it's in this city that you're trying to live out your faith. And he knows, he says, I see that it's difficult. Jesus says, I see you, man. You're smack dab in the middle of a spiritually dark place and you're seeking to live your life as a believer. And he says, and I want you to know I see you and I see how in many ways you're being faithful. How many ways you have not backed down from being bold in your faith. In fact, he points out how even when Antipas, their brother in Christ, he says it there in the text, was killed because of his refusal to bow down to Caesar as Lord. Jesus says, I saw how you saw that happen and you didn't retreat. In fact, you moved forward. You were more bold about declaring me as Lord and refusing to bow your knee to Caesar. So Jesus is celebrating the fact and the truth that Satan couldn't take them down from the outside through direct opposition, through persecution. He celebrates that, and it's something to celebrate, but then there's a turn in the text. We learn here, and this is an important thing for us to learn and to recognize, that Satan doesn't only have one tactic to take you down as a believer. The devil doesn't care how you go down as long as you go down. And he'll keep relentlessly trying to destroy your life. And when he doesn't have success in destroying this church from the outside through persecution, what he does is he finds a back door. And he begins to, in a subtle way, find ways to destroy this church from the inside. And it's something that we need to be on alert about as well. Uh, now point number two is this. Jesus sees that they're compromising and Jesus calls his church to repent from compromise. Jesus calls his church to repent from compromise. Look at verse 14. Here's the term. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching a Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, what does he mean right there? 
What does he mean? Well, we're going to need to obviously think about an Old Testament story here. So just in case you weren't in Numbers chapter 22 for your quiet time this morning, I'm going to go back and review a little bit right here, all right? He's actually reaching back and pulling into view a story that's recorded in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, all right? In the book of Numbers, you find this story about a Moabite king named King Balak, all right? And King Balak gets scared and intimidating, uh, intimidated by this growing nation called Israel. Their army is growing. They're growing in power. The reputation as a powerful army is beginning to grow throughout the land. And he's like, man, I need to get ahead of this. Right? I need to take care of them. And so he, Balak hires this guy named Balaam, who's kind of a mysterious character. Is he a prophet? Is he a sorcerer? Yes, he's kind of uh, he's a mysterious figure. But what we do know is that he does have a special connection with God. And, and so Balak tries to hire Balaam to speak a curse over the nation of Israel. And so Balaam wants to do it, it seems, and God says no, and then Balaam says yes, and it's back and forth. And so Balaam gets on his donkey, and he's going to meet with the king to do it. And on the way, this is kind of a strange story, on the way, he's on his donkey going to meet with this king of this Moabite nation. And on the way, the, all of a sudden the donkey stops because an angel of the Lord is in his path. The donkey sees it, but Balaam doesn't see it. All right? And so Balaam gets like upset with this donkey. This donkey doesn't cooperate with him. This donkey ends up running into a wall and hurts Balaam's leg. And Balaam just gets off the donkey and starts beating the snot out of this donkey. To the point where the, where the, the donkey has enough and actually says words to Balaam. He's like, dude, why are, you be, why are you hitting me? Like, I carry you around. I help you get from place to place. What's wrong with you? And then what's crazy and fascinating to me is Balaam like in stride doesn't miss a beat and just starts talking to him like that's fascinating to me like wouldn't you be like you can talk you can have you always been able to talk and so they begin to go back and forth it's this kind of strange story about how through a donkey God gets the attention of this guy named Balaam Balaam goes to Balak says listen I can't curse Israel I literally can't do it I can only speak blessings and he actually uh, in spite of uh, Balak not wanting him to do it Balaam speaks three blessings over the nation of Israel he obeys God honors God it's a great story if it ended there often the kids story versions end there and yet if you continue to read on you understand that something else happens, hence all the bad press about Balaam and that he gets in the New Testament. See, Balaam, after all this goes down, you continue to read, he can't stop thinking about that bribe. He can't stop thinking about that treasure. He can't stop thinking about that money that the king offered him to put a curse on Israel. And so he starts thinking, man, I could retire early. Man, I could pay off my debts. Man, I could buy that condo at the beach, right? And so he goes to this king and he says, listen, I've been thinking, I can't speak a curse against Israel. I can't just do that outright, but I think I found a back door for you. If that bribe is still on the table, if that bag of gold is still on the table. And he said, and King Balak says, Well, what do you got? He says, Well, if you just release the Moabite women who worship, they worship all these pagan gods and they, they're, they're involved in all kinds of sexual immorality, uh, the Israelite men, if you, they, they can seduce them, release them on them, they can seduce them, they'll start intermarrying with the Moabite women and then they'll begin to worship all these, these pagan idols, they'll begin to, to practice immorality themselves and God will lay the hammer on them. And that's exactly what happened. King Balak says, Balaam, that's a great idea. He sends in these Moabite women over time, they begin to intermarry. And as a result, 24,000 Israelites are killed under the judgment of God. 
Now, why in the world is Jesus bringing this story up in his letter to this church in Revelation chapter 2? Because it illustrates well what is happening in the church in Pergamum. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, the devil couldn't destroy you over here through persecution. So he's sliding in through a back door and he's taking you down slowly and subtly, but surely by seducing your hearts to worship pagan idols and through you committing sexual immorality. In other words, Satan is taking y'all down in the same way Balak took down the Israelites through the corrupt counsel of Balaam hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it's working. He's destroying you not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Jesus points out that the main way that this is happening is through the teaching of groups during that time called the Nicolaitans, like the Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about them, but we know they were a religious group that they claimed to love Jesus, but also mixed into their worship life, uh, with the worship of pagan gods, mixed in a pagan uh, sexual ethic into their worldview. And they're, they're coming along and they're seducing people in the church to join them. And it's working. And you have this compromised faith in the church. This, these people who are, are mixing Christianity with worldliness. But I want to pull you back into 2022 right now and remind us that this is not Arnold Palmer faith right here. This is not a historic problem. This is a right now problem. What are the two sins that Jesus is pointing out in that church? Sexual immor- immorality and idolatry. Are those two things a problem in the church of 2022? No? I mean, we can just shut down and go on home, but those aren't a problem. Of course they're a problem. Absolutely they're an issue. One, sexual immorality. There's, there's a lot, as you look across the landscape of even the, the American church especially, many who have departed from a biblical sexual ethic. Let me just be very clear this morning from my understanding of God's Word as I let it speak to me and as I communicate it to you based on God's Word. Let me state a clear biblical ethic on sex as as clearly as I can. God designed sex as a gift to be enjoyed, but a gift to be enjoyed and to be protected within the bounds of a covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Outside of those bounds... Outside of enjoying enjoying that gift, trying to enjoy that gift outside of those bounds always brings destruction. All sexual sins, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexual relationships, the affirming of transgender sexuality, viewing pornography, it's all sin, it's all destructive, and it all will not, has never been tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. That's not a popular opinion. But my question would be to you, is it a biblical truth? Sexual sin was a problem in the church in the first century, and it continues to be a problem in the church today. And the same could be said about idolatry. All right, problem then, problem today. Here I want to give you a very simple definition of idolatry. Simply put, it's loyalty to idols above Christ. Loyalty to idols above Christ. And we can make an idol out of a lot of things. All right, whether it's a, an idol of sex, the idol of money, politics, approval, self, human relationships. There's a, there's a long list that we could go down, but here's the reality. We will always, even after we come to Christ in our flesh, we will always be tempted to take what can be a good thing and to begin to worship it as a God thing, and that's called idolatry, and God hates it. It's sin. 
So what does God say to a church that's tolerated idols? What does God say to a church full of Arnold Palmer faith? What does God say to a church that because of those things has, has been growing indistinguishable from the world? Well, we don't have to guess. Look at verse seven sixteen. Christ says, therefore, what? Repent. So this morning, let me, we use that word in church. It's a church word. But I want to just stop and I want to give you a really... I really want to give you a theologically, like doctrinally robust seminary level definition of repentance that you can carry with you the rest of your life. You ready? Here's what it means to repent. If you're taking notes, write this down. What's a definition, a working definition, a definition that will help us understand what Jesus means when he says repent? Here it is. Ready? Stop. That's what Jesus is saying. Repent. It it literally means to stop it. Don't play around with sin. Don't tolerate sin. Don't make excuses for sin. Don't justify your sin. Stop it. And don't just stop it. Repenting is not just turning away from sin. It's turning away from a lesser God to a better one. The only one. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Repenting is turning from sin and to Christ who alone satisfies. And Jesus is saying, stop it to this church. Jesus is saying, stop it to the church today. If you're engaged in sexual sin, stop it. Confess it. Repent of it. Stop it. If you're looking at pornography, stop it. Let me just kind of get real this morning because, again, we can make good things, God things, which become idol things. And I think this is fitting right here because they live in a city where they're going to feel the pressure to make political idols and to worship those political idols. And we've got to be careful in our day. Listen, if you you have tied up all of your hope and your energy into something political, a candidate, a movement, a cause that's stealing your affections from Christ to where you're thinking more about political things, to where you're talking to people and engaging in conversations more about political things and political candidates that excite you more than you engage with people about the gospel and Jesus Christ and His kingdom that will never fall. That's an idol. I have to watch my heart on that. That is an idol. And Jesus would say, stop it. Where's your allegiance? Whatever the idol, whatever the sin, pride, greed, selfishness, slander, a jealous spirit, bitterness, substance abuse, lust, you let the Holy Spirit fill in the blank for you. What is it for you? Whatever it is, Jesus says, stop. And what does Jesus say to the church of Pergamon? If you don't, he says, I will come to you soon in war against you with the sword of my mouth. That's one of the saddest thoughts in all of Scripture. That Jesus would come and wage war on his own bride. In essence, what Jesus is saying, if my church, if my local assemblies, if they, if, who exist, if they refuse to repent and continue to grow indistinguishable from the world, I will come to them and I'll put the light out for them. I'll take away their lampstand. And you can look on the pages of history. You can look around town at a bunch of closed down churches. And you can see that it's true that there are times throughout church history that churches become so indistinguishable from the world that Jesus releases them back into the world so that he can preserve his witness in the world. That's a warning for the church today. 
Jesus' desire for His bride never changes. He desires a bride that is distinct from the world. A bride that loves holiness and hates sin. Therefore, repent. However, I want to say something this morning because it's at places in these types of messages that we need to remember something. Because we hear, repent! Stop! And it's kind of like we have this idea in our head and we kind of can begin to view Jesus right here as kind of this, this big, bossy, Old Testament dad who's just trying to crack me on the head, trying to kill my joy, some kind of cosmic killjoy, a controlling father. No, this is the most loving thing that Jesus could do for you. This is the most loving thing that Jesus can do is to call us to repent. This is a loving Savior wooing us, seeking to protect us, seeking to take us down paths to lead us to experience true joy instead of destruction. Does that not sound like a loving Father? Does that not sound like a loving Savior? He wants you to see more clear than ever by the power of the Holy Spirit that that pet idol that you love to coddle and hide away and hang on to that your flesh loves does not love you. That sin that your flesh loves does not love you. It hates you. It wants to kill you. That pet little sin in your life has one goal for your life and it's to destroy you. I've told you all this story before. How when Emma was maybe, I think I have, when she was three or four, uh, we were watching TV and it was back, some of these commercials are still around, but it was when Coca-Cola was using the polar bears uh, as a way to sell their product. And you saw the commercials, right, around Christmas and throughout the year of the little, you know, the nice little polar bears rolling around on the snow and the little cub tumbling down drinking its Coke bottle of Coca-Cola. And I vividly remember, yeah, Emma, she, she piped up and, and she looked at the screen and she said, oh, they're so cute. I would love to have one of those. And me as a high-strung, you know, overreactive young father, you know, I stood up and it was my time for a speech. I paused and I was like, you want that as a pet? Look, just sit down. I need to teach you a life lesson, Emma. Bears are not our friends, all right? Bears would not make a good pet. You know what bears would do? You would feed them, and then they would get big, and they would see you as food and probably bite our heads off. And she's looking at me like, really? Can I just watch the commercial, right? Now, now looking back, probably being a little, over, you know, probably a little bit of overreaction, but I, still stay, I think it's still a pretty good lesson to teach kids. Can't be friends with a bear. If you're walking through the woods, that bear don't want to be your BFF. You don't want to be its BFF. You see that bear, listen, you don't want to cozy up next to it. You're going to want to find a way to get away from it without getting killed. Right? Like, it's the, uh, the two guys who are camping and uh, the bear, big bear, comes into their campsite and lets out a growl and these guys are scared for their life and one of the guys starts putting on his tennis shoes and the other dude's like, dude, are you crazy? You, can't, you know you can't outrun a bear. He goes, I know, I, I just got to make sure I can outrun you. Those guys understand an important thing in life. Now, that one guy does at least. That bears and, human don't, bears and humans don't mix. Bears and humans don't mix. Great lesson to teach kids as they grow up in a world where there are real life bears. But an infinitely more important spiritual lesson for all of us to learn is this. Sin and your Christian faith do not mix. You cannot be friends with sin. That little pet sin in your life 
has one goal for your life, and it's to destroy your life. It's to destroy your family's life. It's to kill your confidence. It's to steal your joy. Therefore, if that is true, is it not the most loving thing Jesus could say to you this morning? Is whatever that sin is, repent and run. Slay it. It may feel like the 1373rd time that you've had to deal with this sin in your life. Put it to death again. Confess it, denounce it, turn your back on it, and turn back to Christ. Run once again back into His open loving arms this morning. The one who alone can satisfy our soul. So He calls His church to repent from compromise. But it it doesn't end there. He, He ends this powerful letter with these incredible... I love this. He doesn't just end there. He ends with these incredible, glorious promises that he lays out here at the end that are better than anything that he's asking us to repent of and to turn our backs on in this world. These future promises that are true for us. The third thing is this. Jesus promises great reward to those who persevere. Jesus promises great reward to those who persevere. Look at verse 17. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give him hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here we see that word conquer again, where we get our word Nike. Nikaio is the Greek word. And what it's doing, uh, you know, what I want to tell you this, if you're here this morning in Christ, you are a conqueror. And what Jesus is doing here is helping us to live from that identity, part of our identity. It's describing a believer here who holds fast to Christ, who holds fast to the truth until the very end. And to the conqueror, there's a threefold promise that's true for you. There at the end of that verse. Those who hold fast to the truth. What does it say? He says, I will nourish you. I will receive you. I will identify with you. First, he says, I will give you hidden manna. I will nourish you. So in a world where wandering people are are seeking to find through substances and relationships and all the things that this world has to offer that they run to to try to quench their thirsty soul, Jesus said, I'll satisfy your soul. To those who conquer, to those who are in Christ, you receive hidden manna. He satisfies our soul. He also promises to receive us. He says, I will give him a white stone. Now, what is the white stone right here? Think like a ticket of of admission that will admit you into a, a really special event. So stones in those days were used as tickets. But this white stone... This is, there's kind of a, a, a royal, something royal connected to it, right? This is a special ticket. It's the picture here, scholars believe, of an athlete who has just won a major race, and there's this royal ceremony, and at that ceremony they're crowned, but they're also given a white stone that will admit them into a victor's banquet, a royal celebratory victor's banquet after that ceremony. And what Jesus is doing is he's using that picture to encourage us that as we trust him, we look forward to the day by his grace that we will be admitted into our own victor's banquet where we will share in the victory that Christ has won for us forever and ever and ever and ever. That's something to look forward to, amen? Amen. Jesus promises to nourish us, to receive us, And finally, he promises to identify with us. To identify with us. There's that phrase, their new name or name no one knows. All through Revelation, when you see that mentioned, it's always referring to one person. Who's the new name? The name that no one knows? It's Jesus. 
We could give you a lot this morning uh, to, to go through, but just even look at Revelation 3.12. Within the study, we'll, we'll visit this. Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God. In other words, his name is going to be the name that's stamped on us for all eternity. In other words, when, when we get to heaven, this, when we get this entrance token into heaven, it's not going to say my name on it. All right, it says the new name of Christ. What is this communicating to us this morning? A very important gospel truth that when the Father looks at me, He will always see Christ. He doesn't see Jonathan in his sin. He doesn't see Jonathan in his shame. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. It's Jesus' name on that token. When we enter into this glorious heavenly victor's banquet, when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we enjoy all the, the riches that heaven has ready for us, what this text is drilling down into our hearts is that for all of eternity, as we enjoy all of those blessings, we're going to be treated to all of that by God as if we earned it ourselves. That is how deeply we will feel like we belong. That is how deeply accepted and loved by God we will feel for all of eternity. And yet we will know at the same time for all of eternity we did nothing to earn it. That it was gifted to us through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He's the one who's earned it on our behalf. And that's why for all of eternity we will worship Him. He will be the one worthy of our worship. Our eyes, our hearts will be fixed on Him for all of eternity. A place where we will exist. And be accepted and loved by the God of the universe. But we'll be accepted and loved by nothing we've done. By everything that Jesus has accomplished. We'll be aware of those gospel truths for all of eternity. And that's what will fuel us for all of eternity to worship Jesus. Church, those are gospel truths we'll celebrate forever. Those are gospel truths that are essential to worship in the here and now. These are gospel truths that fuel our discipleship, that we celebrate right now. These are the gospel truths that will fill us with the courage and the confidence to persevere. Because here's the thing. We get to places like this and in, in texts like this and sermons like this, studying passages like this, where we talk about heaven, we talk about the future, we talk about this victor's banquet, we talk about sitting down at the marriage supper of the Lamb one day. And there's something that, there's a doubt sometimes that can creep in into our hearts where we sometimes struggle with, with really believing. Like, am I really going to be there one day? Like, how do I know I'm going to persevere? How do I know that one day I'll make it to this place that's described right here? Because if you're like me, I know how sinful I am. I know I've compromised in a thousand ways and in a thousand ways more I'll compromise. I turn to lesser gods. I've coddled pet idols. We all have. So what is our hope? Where do we look? The answer is always the same to the one who never compromised. Jesus Christ. He is our substitute. We look to Him as our hope. Where we've compromised, Jesus has been faithful to the end. Where we have been weak, Jesus has been strong. Where we have tolerated sin, Jesus, Scripture says, was tempted in every way as we were and yet found without sin. And yet He died for our sin. He died in our place. Why? Why did He do that? So that we surely can receive manna. So that we can receive the white stone. So that we can receive the new name. 
And our confidence is in our union with Him. We know in our union with Him that we will finish the race as conquerors because we'll finish it through Him who has already conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. That's what motivates us to hold fast to truth. That's what motivates us to not tolerate sin in our life or in our churches. That's what motivates us to slay sin in our life this morning and to persevere because He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our entire lives. And we know certainly for the believer in Christ who is the ultimate conqueror, a wonderful day is on the horizon. A wonderful day is coming for us. Let's pray. Let's pray. This morning, if you have not trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to I lay out a reality for your, for your life. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to share something that I believe is true about your life. That one day you, regardless of your relationship with Christ right now, right now one day you will stand before Christ. Whether we like it or not, we will all stand before Christ. And either we will stand before Christ as the judge who is wielding a sword of judgment and who will judge sin fairly, or we will stand before Him as a crucified Savior saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. You say, well, what's the difference? How, how, How do I find myself on the better side of those two choices? It depends on what you do with Christ right now. What makes the difference is, are you willing to bow your knee to Jesus as Lord today? See, the temptation today isn't to bow our knee to Caesar as Lord over Jesus as Lord. The temptation today can be the temptation to bow your knee to an array of things. Often the thing that can get in the way the most is ourself. We want to remain the king of our own heart. We want to remain the king of our own life. We want to keep living life according to our agenda and our plans. And what Jesus is calling you to do is to let go of those lesser gods, including even the idol of self, and to turn your life to the living, crucified Savior King who can give you something better. He can give you new life. He can offer you forgiveness of your sins. Will you bow your knee to Him this morning? The Holy Spirit's moving in your life. Admit your sin. Throw the weight of your faith on the finished of Christ on the cross. Believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. For the forgiveness of your sins, embrace that. Accept that with a heart of faith. Is the Holy Spirit working in your heart in those ways? I'd love to talk to you. I'll be standing down front this morning. I'd love to pray with you. A Christian believer, here's how I'll call you to respond to this, to recognize we live in a world full of temptations to compromise. We live in a world full of idols that lure away our wandering hearts. And let me just ask you, has your heart wandered? Have you turned to lesser gods? If so, stop. If so, confess. How did the Holy Spirit fill in the blank for your life? Confess it. Let's repent of it. Let's get right with God and let's pray that God will sustain us. Pray His Spirit will fill us up.
It will help us keep our eyes fixed on him and him alone. 